and welcome to Digital Health Unplugged, coming to you from various kitchens and bedrooms and home offices across the country to keep you up to date with all you need to know about NHS IT. We have a very exciting podcast for you today. Um, as always, I say that with a tone of surprise, but let's be honest, they're always interesting. Um, this is the first of a sort of new look format that we're going to be running with some new voices involved. Some of our regular listeners may remember that our October news team debrief we invited some of our digital health advisory panel members to take part in the discussion. And it was such a success that we thought we would make this a more regular thing. So going forward, we're gonna be inviting our advisory panel members to take part in our news team debriefs, and they will bring with them a whole wealth of experience and expertise and knowledge. So what is not to love about that? So without further ado, I'm going to introduce everyone. As always, I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health. And joining me today, we have our fabulous news team, uh, Hannah Crouch, our editor. Hi, everyone. John Hoaxma, our editor-in-chief. Hey, everyone. And we have two of our CCIO advisory panel members. We have Professor Joe McDonald. Hi. And Dr. Marcus Bohr. Hello. So thank you very much for joining us today, guys. Um, it's going to be very, very fun. And um, I do appreciate you're very busy, so I'm glad you're here. As usual, we are going to be looking at a specific topic. Uh, this time, whether the digitization of the NHS is ever going to be complete and what needs to happen in order for us to get there. Um, I think we couldn't also run a podcast with you, Joe, without discussing the very important topic of um, you recently filming with A Place in the Sun. Uh, I don't know about everyone else here, but I am dying to know all about that and whether you actually bought somewhere. So you're not going to get away without being quizzed on that. <laughs> But, um, but first, I'm going to hand over to John, uh, the, big, the big digital health boss, to explain to us what the digital health networks are and what our advisory panels do within them. So take it away, John. Um, thanks, Andrea. Okay, I'm going to keep this um, short. So way back in the midst of time, about seven years ago, we ran a national campaign calling for the appointment of a new type of um, digital leader um, called Chief Clinical Information Officers. Um, we had noticed that big IT projects in the NHS tend to go, go a whole heap better when they're clinically led. Um, and um, we articulated an idea that a lot of people kind of um, um, bought into and recognized. And um, the CCIO kind of movement um, was born. Um, very quickly, that got adopted. Early appointments were made. And the CCIO campaign morphed into a network of um, early CCIOs. Um, and it's built ever since. Very, very soon after we began, we, um, we launched a sister network um, for CIOs um, working in healthcare. And those two have really been the kind of core of the, um, of the networks ever since. Big part of how we kind of go about kind of delivering those um, is by having elected advisory panels um, at which um, National kind of leaders um, such as Joe and Marcus um, have kind of um, have been elected um, representing um, the IT professionals um, in, in the NHS. Um, community now stands at 6,000 strong. Um, there's a lively online um, collaboration discussion platform which people belong to. Um, we run an annual summer school, um, very popular this year. Obviously, it had to be virtual. Um, series of regional kind of events, um, increasingly doing kind of work around advocacy. Um, so regular letters go from the advisory panel to um, to national leaders on topics um, of concern and interest. That's only been the case during COVID-19. Um, but at heart, the community is about 
sharing, collaboration, and helping connect together um, people who are trying to do good things with digital and data in health. Joe, you, you've been a leading light in this for a long time. What have I missed there? You missed the, the fact that we've just opened the library of useful stuff on our online platform, John. Ah, of course. And Joe, in fact, is applying for the job of chief librarian, which um, so I would um, think love, love to be the librarian at, uh, at the, the library of useful stuff on the digital health uh, uh, discourse uh, instance. And um, Marcus, um, it embodies a lot of the DIY kind of um, spirit on um, the kind of networks um, and on discourse. And um, the library is something that Marcus um, built for us just a few days ago. Yeah, um, yeah, I like the idea of that DIY spirit. I'm a, it's that kind of punk element of like, you know, guerrilla set it up yourself kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, we we have had a discourse platform now um, uh, for nearly six years. So it was uh, J- January 2015 that we migrated from our Google groups uh, to discourse. Uh, we were relatively early adopters of discourse, uh, which is a wonderful. Uh, open source uh, forum platform and it's relatively easy to create new spaces in there in fact the 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 reason it's taken us so long to build a a library is not any technical reason it's just having that kind of impetus that that uh, community that wants it and knows how to use it and has decided that they want to build it so having well having a a putative um, chief librarian already raring to go is quite exciting I um I think we should I think we should hire him. <laughs> Joe, you've got the job. Well, the, the only the only problem with that is I'm quite expensive, Marcus. So I'm I'm looking for a, a sponsor, you know, um, preferably a, a deep pocketed sponsor to take me on on a full time basis as the librarian at the Library of Useful Stuff. A sugar daddy. That's what <laughs> I need. That's what you want. This has this has descended already, and we're only six minutes in. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's anyone out there that wants to be Joe Sugar Daddy, do do get in contact. Um, but bringing it back to the networks, Joe and Marcus, what do you think the biggest benefit has been for you guys just to be involved in it? Oh, I mean, uh, well, it's given me a, a, a falsely inflated sense of some kind of actual stature. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the hilarious thing is that I'm, I'm not a CCIO, never been a CCIO likely never to be a CCIO. Somehow I'm on the advisory panel of a whole load of CCIOs. So that's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Keeps It keeps your ear to the ground. You know, it keeps uh, you um, informed about what kind of problems people are experiencing across the whole health and care, um, digital um, landscape kind of thing. So the, that's, that's an advantage. I think it's a, actually just a nice bunch of people as well. You know, we've got a, a, a lively chat um outside of discourse we have a kind of advisory panel whatsapp and that's kind of quite amusing often quite sort of supportive uh especially through covid that's been quite nice so yeah it's um it's it's been a nice community to be part of actually it's given me a sense of uh, a home within digital health when actually as a i'm professionally i'm a a locum gp and a locum emergency physician so i don't really have a home in that regard and I do lots and lots of um, uh, sort of contractual work for various different organisations. So again, no real home. So uh, actually, having a network that is my home has actually been quite reassuring at times. It's kind of nice. 
I think it's been fun and friendship for seven years, but it's it's more than that. Um, and I, I think of two examples of when the network, I think, um, performed really useful service for the nation. Uh, one was during the WannaCry attack, uh, when the network identified the problem uh, and the solution and got it out to the network before uh, the government had even reported on the problem. Um, uh, and we ran an after-action review there, which I think uh, was massively useful to to the, the membership. And the other thing I think which happened just recently was um, we had to take our trust from an organisation that did face-to-face psychiatric appointments uh, to an organisation that did video appointments. And I got all the support I needed and documentation, including a a safety case for a video calling platform um, on the network. So it is fun. Uh, I've had some laughs, but it's really useful as well. Yeah. Um, So now does seem like a very good time for me to say that we are always looking for more incredible digital health leaders to join our networks. Um, As you've heard, it's a really, really good place to, you know, collaborate with your colleagues and share ideas um, and sort of learn from each other and also keep an eye on what's going on at a national level. Um, But also it sounds very fun as well. And we run, we do some, we run some great events. So if you do think this is something you want to get involved in, please do head on over to digitalhealth.net and follow our networks tab to find out a little bit more and to join. Um, So I did say that we would have to talk about some NHS IT um, before we quiz Joe on his newfound television fame. Um, So I thought this would be a good time um, given the year that we have had and how that we have had to go digital in, in so many ways um, to talk about whether the digitization of the NHS will ever be complete. Uh, the long-term plan published in January 2019 made several commitments to technology. I think the biggest being that by 2024, secondary care providers in England, uh, including all acute community and mental health care settings, uh, will be fully digitized. And that would include clinical and operational processes across all of those settings. It also committed to data being captured, stored and transmitted electronically, which would be supported by IT infrastructure and cyber security. Um, We also had a commitment for local health and care records to be covering the whole country by that time, which is a very ambitious target because 2024 is four years away, really. No, we're at the end of 2020. It's basically three years away. So it's that's a lot to achieve in the next couple of years. So I'm just going to open this straight up to everyone. Uh, What do you think? Is this going to happen? Are we on the right track? You know, will we achieve this target? This makes my blood boil. Um, (laughs) Oh no, I've upset you already. (laughs) Paperless by 2024. Mental health have been paperless for nearly 10 years. 10 years. And we're still hearing this nonsense about paperless by 2024. I can remember when it was paperless by 2016. Um, And 2020. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and they still they never they never come and see mental health and say, well, oh guys, I see you've gone paperless. Um, how did you do that? And uh, the answer would be, we did it really fast and we did it really cheap. Um, what you know, we could tell you how you do it, but they, we're never asked. Sorry. Well, um, no, no, that's fine. Maybe someone will contact you after hearing this. Um, but I'm glad you've mentioned different years because I have noticed that these targets, they're not new targets. They kind of just move around a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, the years kind of get pushed back. So, Well, I've started to think it's almost like 
it's like the Olympics. We have paperless 2016, then paperless 2020, <laughs> paperless 2024. The only thing that changes is the venue. You know, which country is it going to be in? 2028. Um, maybe we should get something like the World Cup in between, uh, you know, so that we keep us interested. I think uh, there's an obsession with paperless, um, which I think is actually can be quite unhelpful in that a lot of the discussions I've had um, at sort of in the policy roles that I have with RCGP are to do with getting rid of paper, which can be a great thing, but it depends on how you do it because um, it's quite possible to make things worse whilst you get rid of paper. For example, if you just take a whole load of paper and scan it and stick it into a portal, um, then you've now created what, what I tend to call dark clinical record. You know it's there and you know it's full of information, but you just can't detect it. You know, you can't search it. You can't actually readily uh, see any of the information in there. They've just taken handwritten paper uh, or, t- or typed paper, printed paper, and scanned it into this great big bucket. It's paperless, but it's not actually helped you. And in fact, it's more dangerous now because at least with paper, you could get a you could get the the notes, however hard that might have been, you know. But we did cope with paper notes, and you get the paper notes. You can flick through them, and you can you just might spot someone's handwriting, or you might spot someone's the, the color of pen they used, or you might see a little paper clip on the side of the paper that you know has been put there to uh, as a placeholder. That there are lots of functionality inside paper that we don't give it credit for. It didn't just carry text. It functions as a token of entitlement for things it's a service is has like double duty as a um a placeholder in the queue you know if you have 10 records all in a pile the top one is the first you know that and, and so paper's not completely to be derided i think we've got a lot of stuff we still yet to learn from this and and the the rush to get rid of paper is making people just digitize in in stupid ways like just scanning things i think it's actually can be very unhelpful so this is a case of moving towards using a digital solution and using technology but making sure we're using it properly and not just like using it for the sake of using it yeah it's a if you're going to digitize things then digitize it better the um i think i think the kind of you know as a journalist andrea the top level kind of targets uh, we love them because we watch them go sailing past time and time again unmet <laughs> and there's always a, a always a good story on it but there is of course a nonsense about someone sat in whitehall setting these targets on paperlessness and um, other kind of um, abstract concepts I, I think the digitization of the nhs has improved year on year i mean our, our data says that roughly about 75 percent of uh, provider trusts now have something resembling an EPR elements of um, in place. Um, and we understand that there's a um, bid in with Treasury for another 3 billion quid um, of national investment to complete private provided digitization. But it's a reminder of just how long this has taken. I mean, if you go back, I mean, I think 2020 was once a, a target for um, all kind of trust to be to have electronic patient records. Um, and, you know, the, the most recent kind of national policy initiatives we had was around GDEs and fast followers. Um, Joe was a GDE once upon a time, um, not all by himself. He had some help. Um, and, you know, essentially, essentially, that was a world of haves and have nots. And the 80 percent who were have nots for national investment um, have been sat on the sidelines for a long time. So, um, you know, although there's progress, 
it remains very kind of patchy. I think that digitized why, what, what, what is it that um, the benefits are um, from doing so? So, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in you've got to do it. But I think having a clear focus on, on the why um, would be very welcome. I think there's, the fact that you mentioned there's so many targets, I think it's lost all meaning. I think whenever I hear a target now that I oh, will be have all e-prescribing by 2030 or whatever, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. that's, I'll believe that, it when I see yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I think the targets have kind of lost their meaning now. I just think it just it's just a number. I think sometimes they pluck out of thin air. And I guess in a bid that NHS England likes to come up with t- um, catchy slogans, I think it's time to trash the targets along with the pages <laughs> and the factors to trash <laughs> the targets because I just don't think anyone listens anymore. Yeah. Buy me, Hannah. You'll get a job as a speechwriter at this rate. <laughs> oh, I think we should start using that target, that um, phrase ourselves. We'll just make it make it work. No, because um, I'll get a glad... cease and desist letter from NHS England or something. <laughs> Didn't we make you the boss of the NHS in a few podcasts yeah. ago? So this is your call to make. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I am actually glad that we've mentioned targets because in preparing for this podcast, I sort of went back through and looked at all of the targets that were made in the long-term plan and in the GP contract. And it reminded me of, um, so I think it was January time that we were looking at these targets and trying to work out how far we'd come in trying to achieve them, uh, whether or not some of the ones that were set for this year were likely to be met. And it was it was impossible. Like no one from Central NHS could give us an update on where they were at with these targets, uh, whether they thought they were likely to be met. Um, some of them, like the GP targets, were that all GP con- uh, all practices, sorry, were expected to be offering some online consultations by April this year, which seems like it would be a really easy target to track. But actually, no one could give us the figures on how many GP practices were actually offering this at that point. Um, ironically, COVID has forced our hand and made us go digital in so many ways in primary care. Um, which leads me on to a next, my next question really is, have we moved along with targets at a good enough pace or has this year kind of just shown us that we can do things a lot quicker when we need to? I mean, it's been an amazing year in terms of uh, we've, we've deployed five years worth of strategy in, in, in five weeks at the start of COVID. Yeah. Um, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't about, hitting any targets it was it was just that we had to do it the center took took their dead hand off off the organizations for a while and we cracked on uh, there was some good stuff in that um we got access to teams uh, that was a, a good decision but um you know other other video calling platforms are available and probably cheaper uh, and and now we're now we're hooked on microsoft uh for per, perhaps for a very long time so it's been an amazing ride. Um, I have to say, I've never seen a long-term plan go out of date so fast uh, <laughs> as, as this one. Darren McKenna and I, we, we write our five-year strategy every Christmas and then we rewrite it in the summer because the text moved on. So I think mm. long-term plans are interesting, but um, I think this year has just shown how, uh, how difficult it is to, to, you know, to, to make a long-term plan stick. Yeah, definitely. I, whenever I hear long-term plan, I always think of the five-year plan or whatever it is from, from 1984, this <laughs> this kind of uh, idea, you know, the government has got this, the plan, and it doesn't work. You know, you can't plan, you can't plan uh, months ahead. 
in tech, never mind uh, years ahead. And I think it sort of starts to become, as we've said before, you know, targets that, that, that start to become laughable um, in the same way as, you know, currency is now laughable. And, you know, the amount of the the amount that, that they want something to happen is uh, proportional to the uh, amount of uh of currency that they will uh, throw at it. So if like, if they want it to really definitely happen, they'll say we're going to spend fifteen billion pounds worth of whatever it is on on PPE or whatever. So it's a, it seems like there's a a kind of uh, wishful thinking in yeah, Marcus. And guess what the bill comes to from the supplier when you say you've got fifteen billion pounds to spend on the project? <laughs> oh yeah, it comes to thirty five billion because what they do is they. <laughs> They say that's what you've that's what you've told us you've got. Uh, they assume that we're playing poker, um, and you know. So, yeah, I think exactly that. It's it's cha- it, I think it's slightly chaotic, really. Um, but yeah, have we come far enough along digital digitization program? Um, I think possibly we have i mean one of the things that actually we're now seeing in primary care particularly is just you know the the sheer backlog of stuff that can't be done digitally that just needs face to face that just needs the human touch that just needs people real people in real rooms uh doing real things uh that backlog is is still building and so whilst i think it's absolutely fantastic that we've come so far in such a short time with digitization i think there is a we need the pendulum needs to swing the other way now, and we need to start really uh, opening up the stuff that can that, that needs to be done face to face, whilst keeping the best of what digitization has brought to us. So, I mean, there's no doubt that somebody taking a a face to face GP appointment to get their prescription renewed um, is probably not the best use of that time, um, but equally that person might be lonely. And so sometimes actually that's the only contact they'll have. Uh, and if you force them to do everything online via an app or whatever, then you deprive them of that contact. And so whilst, you know, it's tempting to think of everything as this kind of um, uh, completely uh, focused exercise of trying to get everything that can be done digitally, done digitally, Sometimes you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater if you obsessively overfocus on that because you actually forget that medicine is about people. It isn't about transactions. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point to remember. I, th- I think obviously at Digital Health, we're very pro-tech and we can get swept up in all of the cool things and technology can do, but it doesn't work for everyone. You know, not everyone is going to want to use an app to contact their GP. Um, there are some appointments that you are going to want to see someone face to face in. And I think it's a really, I think it's really important that we don't increase a digital divide by, you know, moving forward as fast as we can with technology and leaving behind the people that actually really need um, that kind of holistic face to face care. Um, so I'm glad you said that, Marcus. Andrew, just back back to your question about uh, have we have we will we ever complete digitization? Um, I, I think j- just to kind of take a, a kind of different sort of analogy, I think if you, the centre tends to conceive of the NHS as like a super tanker, if they steer it the right way, um, it will get to its destination. It takes a while to turn, 
And I think that's completely the wrong way to think about it, particularly on digital. I think it's much more akin to a, a harbor or marina full of small boats. And and the tide has kind of gone up and everyone, all those boats have kind of bobbed up a bit um, on digital. But where they go, what they do and the impact that has on, on patients is really down to the local leaders that we were talking about at the beginning um, of this podcast. Um, it is down to kind of those local CIOs and CCIOs like Joe and Marcus who make all the difference in the world. I mean, the technology is fairly ubiquitous these days. You know, I mean, truth be told, I know suppliers don't like to hear it, but there's not that much difference between a lot of the software that's um, out there in the market, you know, in EPRs. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is fairly kind of well-established um, technology. It's how you use it and it's the quality of the leadership and the teams around them um, at the local level that makes all the difference. So um, I suppose what, what I'm saying is a heartfelt plea for those that actually have to do the hard yards um, locally. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on Joe and Marcus carrying it and um, <laughs> being the leaders that need to give us the tech, um, which I'm going to ask, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball question here. If you guys could just scrap it, start again and redesign NHS technology, what would you do? I would, I would, uh, I'd, I'd break up the centre altogether, or the periphery, as some of my CCIO colleagues call it, uh, uh, and establish regional hubs, regional budgets. Uh, we have a saying at the Great North Care Record that actually, if you can't all be in the same pub in an hour, your project's too big. <laughs> How's that going with COVID? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've actually, we've, we, we have a meeting called Informatics in the pub, which is a very informal meeting in a pub, but we've taken it online. So it now happens virtually. <laughs> People have a beer in their own kitchen and compare notes. So we've had to virtualise the pub for that purpose. <laughs> well, at least the beer is still there. <laughs> Marcus, what would you do? Um, well, it will not surprise anyone to hear me say uh, I would make it all open source. Um, so open source software is uh, software to which you have access to the source code. And I think that whilst it's a bit controversial, you know, lots of proprietary um, vendors would say, but that undermines my entire business model and I can't, I can't um, you know, charge as much for software where I have to give you the source code. It's not about that, really. I expect people to develop software and I expect them to charge for the work that they've done because it's hard work and developing software shouldn't be free. What I do think, though, is that um, software, that it becomes part of medicine, it, 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 we own it, as, as in the profession of medicine has to own that software. Uh, just like we own the knowledge base behind uh, medicine and we share that you know that's it's publicly shared and it's and it's uh, shared on in in uh, textbooks and it's shared in things like um, journal articles and that's how we teach the next generation of doctors and my concern is that as more and more of medicine and health tech becomes proprietary um actually some of medicine gets stolen from us and becomes proprietary and we see in this particularly, the bit that gives me chills is AI, where not only is the software proprietary, usually, um, but the, the data set and the AI training and the actual AI um, engine, I guess you'd call it, is also all proprietary and all part of somebody's special secret source. And that's a bit of medicine that's being taken and turned into... Um, 
essentially alchemy. You know, the alchemy, the alchemist says it works and therefore you have to trust it. What, what we, that's never something we do. Uh, if you compare it to um, the pharmaceutical industry, long ago, I'm talking more than 100 years ago, it was decided, the medicine profession decided we were not going to let them proprietorialize bits of medicine by making secret molecules that we were not allowed to know what they were. We told them very firmly, nope, uh, you have to publish the molecule. You have to tell us what it is and how you make it. Um, you can have a short-term exclusivity right on it, which is you know, what we use as a patent, essentially. Um, but fundamentally, those drugs and all the testing and the research has to be open. And we've managed that with the pharmaceutical industry to come to a truce on it so that, you know, yes, there is a pharmaceutical industry and yes, they make money. They make drugs which we need that we use to treat patients. Um, but we've managed to do that all in essentially a fairly open way. And I'm acknowledging that there are not, it is not a perfect system and there are still problems with it, but it's a damn sight more perfect than we've got with uh, software. We, we seem to manage to sort of get ourselves out of the hot water of the pharmaceutical industry, only to jump straight into the next pan full of hot water with the software industry. And this is an, a thornier problem, actually, because of um, the difference in how software is protected. Because pay, uh, when you have a, an invention, it's protected under patent, which has an expiry date, essentially. Copyright, which is what protects software, does not have an expiry date or at least not not in real time, as in uh, uh, copyright expires 75 years after the death of the last author of the work. So, you know, if a corporation writes some software, essentially the corporation doesn't die. 75 years after its death doesn't really happen. So once something is uh, copyrighted, it's basically copyrighted forever, you know, in the context of, of medical software, for example. So we have to renegotiate that arrangement. Um, uh, but I don't hear many people talking about it. So, you know, that's the thing that I would solve with a snap of my fingers um, and upset a lot of people. But, you know, I, I still think it's solvable in without snapping fingers. It's solvable with, you know, discussion and, and talking about it. But we have to get it onto the agenda. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, this is about people's health and people's lives. And you shouldn't be in it if you're just wanting to make money from your product it, it, you should be in it for wanting to you know improve the healthcare that we can offer people so that makes perfect sense to me yeah that's um, that's true john did you did you have anything you wanted to magically change about tech in the nhs um no i i wouldn't want to magically change um the world i i think um i think you know we we, we have to work with the messy imperfect um reality we have um what i would kind of absolutely kind of um you know agree with is a call for much greater openness and um you know i i'm i mean less about kind of open source or open platforms although i think they have an important kind of um, role to play but much more about openness on what works what's effective um and you know i'm, I'm struck time and time again that although things are getting better it is still really difficult to to get reliable, good information on um, what digital kind of treatments and interventions and projects um, have worked, why they've worked, um, to scale that up from kind of um, one kind of um, organization to another. 
And, you know, I, I think if you go back over the past couple of decades, you know, that was one of the fundamental problems with the national program and what, what's flowed since that actually there were known problems. I think people perfectly well understood that there were some systems and some approaches that really didn't kind of um, deliver benefits. And yet changing that or, or stopping them um, just as proved kind of painful. So I think both stopping doing bad things or things that don't work and sharing kind of benefits for me are all about shining a light and transparency. Now, I know that's kind of um, clearly a view from um, someone from a journalistic background, but I think everyone in the sector sharing more information on what works and on what doesn't as well um, is going to help us all get to where we want to get to much, much more quickly. John, cost per month per user. You know, we, yeah, we never get to it. see those, those. Never see those numbers. We never get to see the relative usability of systems. Uh, people are too afraid to even run a survey like that in case you get, um, you know, legal hassle. Um, years and years ago, I tried to set up a website called CompareTheSoftware.co.uk, uh, and very quickly realised that it was a too risky a business uh, from a legal point of view. The government should be doing it, though. Did you have meerkats with an Eastern European accent? Because maybe that would have made all the difference. <laughs> I, I, I actually originated the meerkats, Marcus, and, uh, you know, they stole it off me. <laughs> maybe it's time to, to, to go at it again, you know? Maybe, maybe. But you need deep pockets, government deep pockets, if you're going to take on big um, IT companies. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean... When we ran the clinical software usability survey, which is, you know, essentially that that thing, we, we did try and do that. Um, and we actually spent a lot of time worrying about whether we were going to get sued. We did it anyway, mm. and we didn't get sued. In fact, I was quite surprised at how positive all the suppliers were about this, actually. Even the ones that did really badly didn't protest or try and sort of... Um, uh, get legal or even they didn't even challenge the the methodology or anything like that so but what what really disappointed me is that subsequent to that we approached people at nhs england i think it was um i won't name names but uh the and we presented the the thing that we'd done we said we've built this thing we want to turn it into a platform essentially you know the trip advisor of healthcare software you can hear what other people thought of it and you can get honest reviews and stuff like that. And they were very, they were underwhelmed to the point of, I mean, actually at the end of the discussion, they sort of almost turned around and said, I really, they just fundamentally didn't understand even why we would want this thing. And when you're dealing with that kind of attitude inside the, like the periphery, as you call it, you know, what we traditionally refer to as the central NHS bodies, you know, um, that intransigence, is just very disappointing. That seems like a good place to sort of leave the topic of NHSIT for a bit and um, talk about Joe's time on a place in the sun because I don't, I really need to know. I think we all need to know um, and I'm not letting you leave without telling us everything. So please, where did you go? What did you do? Tell us everything. Oh, well, we went to Kefalonia, the, the birthplace of civilization, uh, and we were uh, hosted by A Place in the Sun and the lovely Laura Hamilton, um, and the code of a place in the sun is that I could tell you what happened on the show, 
but then oh, I would have to kill you. No. So you will have to, you will like have to wait. Club. It is like Fight Club. <laughs> you will have to wait for the show, which I, 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 I will get a couple of weeks' notice apparently when it's going to be on. And trust me, you will find out. <laughs> oh, so you can't even tell us if you bought somewhere. Can't tell you that, or I would have to kill oh, you. Oh, no no one ever buys anything on that show. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> what did you expect, Andrea? You're you're talking to a consultant psychiatrist. This guy is used to confidentiality. He's been doing it for 40 years. I thought maybe we could trick him into telling us. <laughs> uh, no, it'll, it'll it'll take more than that, I'm afraid. But uh, you know, what will it take? A bit McKinsey type salary would probably do it. We could record two different endings to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i am i am gonna have to wrap it up there because unfortunately we have run out of time uh hannah john marcus and joe thank you so much for joining us on digital health unplugged it's been a very fun chat although slightly disappointing that joe couldn't tell us much more about a place in the sun once again for anyone who wants to join our networks you can do so on our website at digitalhealth.net just follow through on our networks tab and you can see everything you need to see there don't forget we publish fortnightly on spotify apple podcasts and itunes so please do give us a follow on any of those platforms to keep up to date with our podcasts and as always if you have a suggestion or you want to get in contact you can email us on podcast at digitalhealth.net that's it for this episode. We will catch you next time. <laughs>